Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming. The podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu. This is Fintech Daydreaming. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Fintech Daydreaming. As always, I'm Paul Krogdahl. I'm going to be your host for this show, for this episode. And with me, I've got, as always, my fantastic friend, Villa Sointo, who's going to help me to keep me on the straight and narrow and honest as we go through a roller coaster ride of the world of embedded finance open banking, platformification, and a fantastic move towards a future vision of, of banking. So Villa, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. It's the first full week of work after my summer break, uh, even though we did a couple of episodes already uh, of the podcast, which was always uh, always as, uh, you know, as much even if, if you're still on vacation. But yeah, uh, kind of getting up to speed. Uh, I guess uh, what we say, say in Finland now is that it's, it's now time to start preparing for Christmas, uh, even though it's still August, but uh, have, to, have to have something to uh, wait for. No, oh, I, I start getting ready for Christmas on January 1st. I mean, <laughs> Christmas is always something to look forward to. But today I'm even more excited. I, we've got with us uh, Simon Torrance, who is a fantastic thought leader, entrepreneur, senior independent advisor. I mean, he's even done uh, advisory for the World Economic Forum, which, I mean, to me, that is some real cool, interesting stuff. He has written a book. He has got something called the New Growth Playbook, all focused around helping organizations to get from old, stagnant, uh, dying business models to a whole new world of platforms and platform business models. Something that I personally have got a big interest in. I am very passionate. Everybody knows that I, I repeatedly keep saying that I strongly believe the future of the banking industry will be dominated by platforms. I think we see this coming. It is huge. And I think Simon, listening to uh, some fantastic interviews that you've already done on, on YouTube, et cetera, and even checking out your, uh, your videos around the new growth playbook, it sounds like you really also believe that platform business models are going to dominate business in the future. Yeah? Well, yes, yeah, and they're, they're, because they're very appropriate for a digital world. And, of course, the, you know, the most successful companies today are all platform businesses. They're all software businesses. Uh, they've worked out how to create a platform business model and they've become very successful. So uh, my view is that every company needs to adopt and adapt some of that magic to their own business if they want to stay successful in this world. So, so what is a, a platform business model? If you had the, oh, please, I mean, share with us, what do you see as a platform business model? Yeah, platform business model fundamentally says you don't have to do everything yourself to serve customers. Um, so at one level, a simple example um, would be Uber. No, so Uber doesn't employ drivers. It doesn't own any cars. 
it just connects people who need a ride with people who are happy to give a ride. And it's a pure bit of software that matches those people up. So that's the, that's the purest example of a platform, pure software that connects people together, matches them, um, people who need something, people who've got something. Airbnb is another good example of that. In the, um, uh, another example from a traditional company would be Apple. So Apple used to make computers and then sell computers to people. Very expensive to do that. Um, you need to build factories, lots of people, very high cost. And when it moved into mobile phones, it said, well, you know, mobile phone is, we've great, created this great mobile phone, but people are going to be attracted to it if there are lots of applications that work really well on the phone. And so rather than them trying to come up with all the applications, they created an open marketplace, an app store for other people to create applications to serve their customers. And that drove demand for their core business, which was the phone. So that's an example of a traditional company applying a platform model to add value to customers and create a lot and lot of value for itself in so doing. Yeah. So it's the notion of being an intermediary between people who want something and people who've got something, whether you create those solutions and or you work with others to do so. So we're talking about a matchmaker, basically, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Fundamentally, it is a matchmaking matchmaker of of nearly of nearly anything. Mm. So it could be it could be software, physical products, could be ideas. I mean, uh, all, all kinds of things. So uh, matchmaking is one of the core elements of a successful platform business. Yes. Okay. What What do you think is is preventing large organizations generally from adapting and, and adopting a platform business model or a platform strategy? Well, there are a number of things. One is that uh, it's very different to what they're used to doing. So, and I'll come back to that in a second. The second is it's completely software-based. And if you, you know, if you're running a company that isn't a software company, you know, you don't, you know, it's a difficult thing to, to conceive of, let alone create. Mm. Um, and the, the, the third thing is the skills, the organizational skills. So, you know, you've got a core business that does a certain thing really well. It spent, you know, decades in many cases for a traditional company to grow its business, to become mature, to scale. And everything is focused on making that whole process more efficient and effective. And typically for most businesses, they, they operate what we might call a pipeline. They, they, they um, source raw materials, they create products, they distribute products to customers. It's a pipeline business. A platform, as I mentioned, is one where you don't have to do all that creation to add value to your customers. You act as an intermediary. And that whole way of thinking is, is very different. You need different skills, you need different attitudes, you need different metrics and so on. So the people who run traditional companies have not be, have become sex, successful by running a what we might call a pipeline business. Mm. And they, they've never done a platform business before, and they don't know software typically. And therefore, those combination of things means it's, it's, there are some very significant, not only mindset challenges, but also just basic skills challenges. And then you get to the organizational structure 
challenges as well. So that's fundamentally why it's very difficult for traditional companies to adopt that approach. And I should just say, you know, it's also difficult for the companies that were the pioneers. Mm. So Apple, Apple, I mean, they had a lot of arguments internally about whether they should open up their app store to third parties. You know, even you know, when they did that in 2008, and even, even Jeff Bezos with Amazon, when he wanted to create an open marketplace back in 2000, there were a lot of complaints from his colleagues that, that you know, that would be cannibalizing our, our retail business. Why would we want to do that? Mm. So even those companies, the pioneers, they had to go through their own journey of, of understanding uh, and change their mind, mindset to be able to move into this space. And then of course, you know, the great, we have this great wave of startups which said, that's a good model, why don't we do it? Like Uber, like Airbnb and, and other platform businesses. So I think those are the main reasons. It's, it's, it's interesting when you, you discuss Apple and Amazon as large organizations that have struggled to sort of adapt and adopt into a platform business model, even though we've always seen them as being very innovative, very new, very agile. And then you move over into the banking industry. I mean, banking as an industry, as a business model, hasn't changed since the beginning. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years of, you know, the same structure, the same way of working, the, the same philosophy. And we're now saying that the world is going to be based on, on platforms. That's, that's a fundamental mind shift for the, the leadership of any bank to have to, to go through. So what do you think is going to be the sort of success here for the banks to adopt this whole new way of working? And do you think that most banks will manage? Uh, well, huh. second question is an interesting one. We'll start with the first one first. I think so. Um, the challenge, as I said, is that um, all the, the everything, all the bank's processes are about delivering the business model that has been successful for the last 150, maybe even long, more years. You know, um, and so the the only way and I'll give you some good examples in a minute. The only way of creating a new business model like this, which is fundamentally different in nearly every aspect, is to create a separate space for it. Yeah. It's not going to happen within the core, not, not to start with at least, um, because you, you got all kinds of uh, complaints about cannibalization and uh, this is not how we do things and customers don't want this and all these reasons why um, it's too difficult and too risky and, and everything. And, uh, and banks are very good at risk management and, and therefore, you know, there's some downsides to that as well. So the only way of doing it is to create a separate space where, and I call this the ambidextrous organization, a place which has different people completely different metrics not not at all like the metrics of the core bank and different incentives for those people to create a essentially a software uh, a multi-sided software business model mm -hmm. and it, so it has to be away from the core business um, now there are various mechanisms it, the other key thing is it it can't be so distant that the core business thinks, well, why, why are we spending all this time and money over here? And why is this, you know, this, this, this new business using all our assets, our distribution capabilities, our, it could be IT platforms and procurement. So the new business, 
the new platform business has to drive demand for the core business as well. Okay. So that everybody is happy. And I'll give you a really good example of how this is working, actually. Um, one of the best examples is in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, with And it's just started with a bank. And I'd say, well, you know, it's early days still, but it's Standard Chartered Bank. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the best examples of a bank who has really adopted this model, but in a way that is going is most likely to succeed. So it created a completely separate ventures unit uh, called SC Ventures. And one of the ventures they created was a bank as a service platform, a completely separate venture away from the core business. And that essentially, and and this is coming on to our discussion about embedded finance, but this sells banking capabilities to third-party online marketplaces and digital businesses. So that those online marketplaces can embed banking services and other financial services into their propositions. Very, very attractive to them and very attractive to this essentially a startup for the bank um, because they have 100 million consumers and 15 million merchants, big business there. So it's it's a completely separate software business. They've built their own tech stack, didn't use the core banking stack because it's terrible. Um, built it from scratch, and they they go directly to these new customers. But, and this is the really key thing, every every time they create a a digital wallet for a customer and a bank account to go with it, the bank account is provided by the local core business of Standard Chartered. Mm -hmm. So Standard Chartered core business go, well, this is good. We're getting new deposits. We don't have to do anything here at all we're getting into 100 million we might get which is pretty good we don't have to do anything so we're happy and you've got this flourishing software business that um that actually i mean the leaders of it think it would be worth more than the core bank you know in in three or five years time because you know and, and you see all these examples of fintech platform businesses being worth more than 100 year old uh traditional banks so that's a really good example of a, you know, a, an example of a platform business and the way of executing, which gets over that hump of the hump of you know, lack of skills, capabilities, you know, metrics, et cetera, but also delivers value back to the core business. So it's such that the core business will continue to support it and you can create synergies between the two. That's a fantastically good example. I'm wondering, Villa, you... You're sitting with inside of Nordea, who has been hailed as, as one of the, the leading banks around open banking and, and driving a platform agenda. Any thoughts? A few, a few reflections. Uh, actually, reflecting back on, on one of the discussions we had last season on the podcast, even, which was if you kind of divide the, uh, this kind of almost like the, the value chain of services being provided for, for financial services users, there's kind of the, the supply line. So how do you actually make the quote unquote product? And then there's the platform and how you make it available for people. And then there's distribution, uh, which can be kind of connecting to the, maybe the next topic we're gonna talk, talk about, which is embedded finance. Uh, but if you kind of look at to the supply chain side of things, and I think this, so we talked about this, uh, uh, the, about this uh, production cycle in a way uh, in the last season as well, mm-hmm. which is that today, most of the banks uh, are working in, in this kind of product-driven world, 
where you kind of you kind of manufacture everything in house, and this is the equivalent of a car manufacturer uh, having their own farm of cows in order to produce leather seats for their cars. Uh, what, which of course doesn't make any sense from a car manufacturing standpoint, i.e. you buy these from suppliers and then the, it becomes a part of your whole value proposition, but it doesn't mean that you have to grow cows yourselves. And I think we're, we're yet to see this full transformation uh, from a banking perspective, moving uh, from uh, kind of combining several, maybe external, partly internal products, like you sort of mentioned, uh, into this kind of a outcome-based business, uh, which is part of the narrative around uh, embedded finance. But uh, I'm curious actually to talk about the uh, the kind of evolution towards uh, embedded finance, uh, especially in context of, uh, of how open banking has been developing uh, lately. Because uh, that's actually one of the questions that we get a lot. I mean, we've been talking about PSD2 and open banking for so long time. Uh, don't they, all the banks already have APIs available? Uh, is this the same as embedded finance? And what actually defines embedded finance maybe simon you have a good uh, view into this topic yeah absolutely this is so this is my big focus at the moment because i did a um i did a project actually a platform strategy project for a very large international european bank um a couple of years ago mm -hmm. and uh, all the problems that i just i described earlier on were there uh, but, but I looked at I looked at what type of business models were really taking off uh, in the in the finance world, and, and embedded finance uh, was one of those back then, and is now. I, I've then since done a lot of uh, market research and, anal and analysis, and it's it's very exciting. Soon. Um, but I, it just if we just describe what it is, so embedded finance, what it means is it's taking advantage of the developments in financial technology capability. Okay. So now, in theory, nearly any type of product, service, or capability can be abstracted into software and then be made available to any developer within any type of company to either um, make it part of their own customer propositions, like Lego bricks that they can then use to configure some new proposition or it can be an add-on to a service so it could be like you know like a buy now pay later or a insurance when you go to point of sale um, so now financial technology has become so sophisticated that that what i've just described in the past is very complicated and you had to very you know years of integration and doing sort of complex negotiations with banking or insurance partners but now it's really easy and just as we saw in telecoms and in software, you know, IT originally, you're now having this new breed of what I call developer platforms that are sitting between the supply base of banks and insurers. They are, they are taking through APIs, getting access to nearly any type of capability and then making it very easy for developers and product product creators within third-party businesses to then configure solutions that suit their customers because they know their customers really well. They know them much better than the bank or the insurance company. Yeah. So, so the you know, APIs are just an, an IT exposure you know, capability, but it's what you do on top of that uh, that is key. And it's this, it's attracted and VC money has poured into this, a new breed of what I call developer platforms that are enabling people to take advantage of this. And in, you know, in telecoms, we saw this with companies like Twilio 
um, and not many people have heard of Twilio, but if you interact, if you as a consumer interact with, a, with an enterprise over your phone or with uh, messaging, it's, it's organized, Twilio organizes that. They're a developer platform that lets enterprises interact with you using communications and they connect all the telcos. And we're seeing the same with, with uh, in the financial services sector. So that's essentially, if you like, what it is. And we can come and I can talk for a long time about the different sort of use cases, case studies and the opportunities, opportunities and threats to multiple parties. But just to your point, Villa, um, one thing about open banking is that open banking makes all of that work even better because the a brand or a, di or a digital a platform will have a lot of data about their customers. And that's pretty good. Um, if you can combine that with transactional data about the end user through open banking, you know, consented open banking data, then you've got this treasure trove of data which helps you to create more personalized, less risky, more affordable solutions for the end customer. I mean, it's a great, it's great for the underwriters because you know they can they they've now got much more data that they can play with. And then it's, it's great for those who are trying to create the solutions because they can make them now much more relevant and personalized and cost-effective. Yeah, many things in this actually, they're not the same, but they rhyme, right? I mean, in the, in the same way as banks need to relook the way they build products or outcomes uh, by combining several, several things together in order to kind of provide a better service to become, become a platform. Now with embedded finance, the banks who actually provide the financial services as part of their kind of uh, workflow uh, of the uh, of the kind of uh, well, for example, e-commerce site, they are in a way being kind of one step ahead of uh, kind of above that value chain, but in the same way providing only a partial thing as a full customer experience, i.e. the embedded finance part. So yeah, a lot of uh, parallels there for sure, and I, it's an interesting uh, interesting kind of value chain to uh, to observe. But there's, there's, there's also a, a, a double-edged sword here, right? We're talking on the one side about banks becoming platforms and, and driving platform business models. But on the other side with embedded finance, we're talking about you know, a commodity-based business. We're talking about the banks basically becoming white-labeled services of generic capabilities that, that anyone can deliver. We, we saw that in telco. It basically means that the banks become focused on low margin, high volume transactions, rather than actually that close customer relationship that you would get with a platform, because yeah. they become embedded into the platform. So, so isn't there a, a dilemma here that the banks really need to figure out for themselves, you know, do they play in this commodity based, low value, high volume game, or do they step into the platform business model game and try to position themselves as the, the orchestrator or matchmaker of the, the consumers and providers of the future? Well, I think they need to do both exactly that. So in that example from Standard Chartered is probably quite a good one. So in that case, they, they are a platform now. They are a developer platform uh, serving this huge new market of digital you know, digital marketplaces and e-commerce players. So they, they've now got a stake in the future there. You know, they, they are now they've got a software business, which is a platform itself and is and is help enable them to enter a completely new market they would never be able to enter before. 
So that's very good. Now, the core business, it also, because it's got lots of customers already, it will need absolutely to be a platform itself to retain its customers. So, you know, a bit like, um, you know, Revolut is a good example of a, you know, of a fintech, which is, you know, it's probably one of the, you know, leading neobanks, which has got platform thinking embedded in, inside itself. It, it creates products really fast that tests them very quickly with its customers um, and off, can offer a much broader range of products that are, that are attractive to keep them sticky. Yeah. Um, and then if you go to, to Russia, um, Tinkoff Bank, Tinkoff Bank is probably the best example in the world. It is voted the world's leading digital bank, I think, last year. Um, it has a return on equity of a return on, on, on equity of 56%, I think, and it's just off the scale. Um, and uh, it, because it's a it's a re, you know, it's not an ancient bank, it's relatively relatively new, I think 20, 20, 30 years old, but it has created around its core business, a set of lifestyle services to, to keep its customers sticky. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a reason to stay with Tinkoff because the more services you can you consume from them with a single sign-on and payments all embedded in the background, you know, why would I go elsewhere? They've, they're creating a, a, a version of a super app. Very, very, and that's the sort of very, very powerful example of a, of a platform business model or an or ecosystem orchestration, um, um, which, which can be very successful. So, you know, my, you know, my, my bank is, is NatWest Bank in the UK, mm. and they have nothing like uh, what Tinkoff offers. And um, we'll come on and talk about maybe you can tell directly which which direction you want to go in and what traditional banks need to do. But I think fundamentally they need to do both now. But but it, they've got to overcome some of these organizational barriers, fundamental mindset structures, metrics, incentives, which hold them back at the moment. It's I mean. Paul, Paul, you said that, uh, you know, this is a commodity business, so there's no differentiation whatsoever. But some you mentioned that data, of course, is important here. The more data you have, the better risk controls you have. Do you think data would be the way to actually differentiate and be more competitive as part of this embedded finance landscape uh, as a bank? That's yeah, well, so, well, it's a very good question. Yeah, so the more data you have, the more insights in theory you have, and therefore you can use those insights to provide products that meet unmet needs. That's what, that's what fintechs and startups are very good at doing. Mm. I have to say, banks have got all my transactional data. You know, they don't need open banking. They've got it all already. My bank has that. Why do they? <laughs> and yet they offer me nothing. Yeah. But apart from a you know, big safe to put my cash in, although it's not even cash anymore. So you know, I, I'm, I, have, I have zero affinity with my, my bank. I, I'm actually, I'm pretty confident they will keep it safe, but nothing else. Um, and in fact, they do, they've they created a, a loyalty rewards program recently. And uh, it's, it's on the homepage of my app. And I thought, oh, I'll have a look at that. So I've been with them for 30, over 30 years. I must've picked up quite a few rewards. The sum total is 25 pounds 82 when I look at this <laughs> Thank you for our loyalty. Yeah. Wow. What am I getting? <laughs> Thank you, and they Thank said you for your custom. 
if I no. want to redeem it, it'll take 30 days to redeem it. So I'm, I'm so now somewhere in that app, it's also got, uh, because the app's pretty good to use, I can check my ban balance, I can make transfers, that's banking one point, you know, 0 0.9 or something, I don't know. Um, but it says, oh, some offers here. So I go into offers, okay, I'll just for sake, of, I did it just before I came on this podcast, just so I could, because you asked for a joke, Paul, so maybe this is the joke. <laughs> I've got another one later, but, but um, so the offers are good, so I can get credit, Oh, that's quite good. I get insurance and I can get a few other things. Um, and I have to apply for those. So I have to fill in lots of forms to apply for them. Yeah. But they know what I do. They know all my purchasing behavior because I use their debit and credit card. But they have just, they, they've been trapped within the way that they think about the world. And that's because they are by nature risk managers. They are brilliant at risk management. That's why I keep my money safe for them. They are not innovators. They are not Revolut. They're not Tinkoff. They're not all the other. They're not, you know, Klarna. Or, you know, Klarna is now worth nearly double Deutsche Bank. Yes. You know, why, but Deutsche Bank could have created Klarna. Nordea could have created Klarna. Has all the assets, knowledge, and everything else. But it can't do that. So, so that just, I mean, that example just illustrates the fundamental challenge and it's you know i have to if i just i'll just carry on my train of thought here for a second and it's not funny anymore because um if you look at the economic profit of the largest banks in the world i think the top 200 banks in the world um on average they make negative economic profit the economic profit is not what they publicly announce it's 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 profit after cost of capital. Yeah. So before COVID, in the three years before COVID, uh, on average, the banking sector made neg I mean, huge negative economic profit. Now with digitization accelerating all the pressures that it does on, on the sector, that's due to get even worse looking forward. So you've got this supply side, which is entirely broken. And that's, what, that's what's creating the flood of, of fintech innovators and the flood of VC. It's entirely broken. There's a, you know, uh, apart from the fact, you know, the people who run the banks are fat and happy because they've got a couple of years left on their, you know, their career before they, you know, they get, anyway, come back to that later. But it's entirely broken. And on the, on the demand side, we have enormous protection gaps, enormous funding gaps. So we've got a, a financial system that is broken. People can't get access to affordable, relevant, personalized financial solutions. And the supply side is not making money delivering what it's doing at the moment. So that's where you need a reinvention of the, you know, of the, of the business model of a financial solution provider. And uh, that's why it's so imperative that things speed up now, because those pressures are getting bigger on both sides at the moment. I think you mentioned something very, very critical in all of that, uh, Simon. And it reminds me, Vil, of the discussion we had with Ewan um, earlier in one of our episodes around the fact that the key people in a bank that should be motivated to drive these changes aren't motivated to drive the changes because their current uh, bonuses, uh, etc., are tied to maintaining the current flow of business. And any large change that they implement 
the rewards of that will come after they've retired or left or whatever else. So they're not motivated in any way to look past, you know, the next two, three quarters. So it's, it's exactly like you said, Simon, it's very difficult to change that whole fundamental mind shift in most banks to adopt to this new model based upon, you know, what we're all used and comfortable with. And yet it's quite easy to do. So, and this is the, and this is the problem. So uh, you've had obviously a lot of innovation theater going on. As you know, a lot of hackathons and we create sort of uh, office space. We get in startups to come and work with us. And every, well, most banks have gone through that, um, in, you know, in the last five years. And it's delivered almost no, I mean, no real material impact because the economic profits are still so bad. Um, but if you, if you do the ambidextrous organization structure properly, then you can then you can win, like the example I gave from Standard Chartered. We're seeing this actually from um, Goldman Sachs with the creation of new ventures there, which are proving successful as well. Yeah. Um, and there's some other, you know, a few other examples from other, from other sectors. But unless you make that fundamental uh, split, and it's not, and I'm going to talk a bit about the detail of it, um, then you, you won't get out of that problem you just described there. But to create the invent the future part of the business is not a huge investment. I mean, compared to all the money that they, you know, they waste on sort of massive IT transformation projects, it, it's just sort of tiny, tiny in, in um, relatively. But it needs to be done not as theatre, but as a part of a real integrated strategy to grow the value of the business not to learn, not, not just to learn, put it that way. At the moment, it's all about, well, let's learn a few things about digital stuff, and then we'll see what we could apply. Um, so it needs to be done properly, and there needs to be a governance that means that this, has, this area has the right people with the right metrics, with the right incentives, um, that it has the ability to create completely separate ventures, like the one I mentioned with Standard Chartered, yeah. um, that can grow separately and then be reincorporated back in the business when they become mature. Um, but that does allow the bank to create its own version of Klarna or, or um, Revolut or, you know, or even the, the bank as a service or embedded finance platforms or whatever. And until you do that and give it the same prestige within the bank as the core business, you don't, it doesn't have as much money by, you know, tenfold amount but it has the prestige and it's governed in a way using the right metrics with the proviso that whatever it does here is going to drive demand for the core business and that's very clear to the core business as well and part of the mandate unless you do that um, then you won't make the change uh, and that's my that's my biggest message at the moment that's that's a fundamental enabler and i don't see many banks and insurance companies doing that at the moment. And that's why they are, I mean, that's partly why they are suffering so, so much. Um, yeah, I think it was actually you who said that this is the so-called uh, speedboat strategy. So basically you break off the main kind of carrier and then you kind of have your own agenda as the kind of the digital unit of the bank and you are allowed to execute. 
we've seen many banks try this. I mean, uh, SCB obviously seems to be one of the more successful ones here, at, at least for the moment. But we've also seen some fail. So we've seen JP Morgan and RBS both uh, trying something like this and uh, not being successful. Uh, what do you think, Simon, is the, uh, the kind of key success or failure factors uh, with this strategy? Yeah, so it's governance. So, so you know, throwing a little bit of money at something to test things out is, is not the approach. It, it's, it's got to be, um, it's, it's, I mean, there's all kinds of things related to it, but governance is the key one. And the method of execution has to be different than the core business as well. So one of the best examples in the world of a financial institution doing this very well is Ping An, which is an insurance company from China. And um, they, they said, we, to your point, Paul, they said, we're, not, we're no longer an insurance company. We're gonna be a technology business which happens to own financial service licenses. Right. That's it. They said that about 10 years ago. So already, my God, that's, my God, that's different. <laughs> um, and they said that we, are, we're gonna, we want to be more embedded in people's daily lives. So they created in a separate space, either through building it themselves, working as joint ventures with entrepreneurs or buying companies as well. They created a set of ventures that were all uh, platform businesses mm. in areas of people's lives, buying and selling cars, buying and selling real estate, entertainment, healthcare. They do the, one of the biggest telemedicine platforms in the world because they said, we want to be, we want to get into people's everyday lives because insurance people buy it, they die and they don't do very much in between or they, you know, they, they have to get it for the car and then they wait till the year's up before they renew it. So, so they, they created these ventures that allowed them to get into those spaces, every, people's everyday lives. They had a single sign-on for the bank and all of these. And then they suddenly, to your point, they collected huge amounts of data and then they embedded insurance and banking services into those platforms, their own platforms, even better than doing it into a third party platform. They created this integrated ecosystem and that catapulted them to be the, I think they're now the seventh biggest or most valuable financial institution in the world. And no bank has done what I've just described there where they have all those capabilities to do so. I'm not suggesting, you know, uh, it needs to be different in different situations, but but that the fundamental, you know, the, the boldness of the of the statement, we're not a bank or we're not a financial institution, that created, you know, the uh, you know that created the space for this to 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 exist. Then the structure uh, in which these new ventures could be created, working with external entrepreneurs, giving them stakes in the ventures, much better than doing. You know CVC investments because you don't you can't control them. You know it's your business, but you don't run it. You get someone else to do it. You take a stake. That creates the incentive, and then you can buy you incorporate it later. So uh, th there's a lot of you know good lessons that can be learned, um, but it does take that leadership. You know from the person at the top saying, "We've seen how Alibaba and Facebook and Google operate. We are going to try and learn from that." And apply it to ourselves in an effective way, um, but but I have I'm not seeing at the moment uh, you know any banks or insurance companies doing that with that boldness that I've just described. Okay, I, I think 
I think I could mention a few that seem to be stepping in that direction. D DBS is, is one of them. Uh, SBI with your noise, another one yeah. uh, in India. So we're starting to see this rising up. You're absolutely right. There are there are some outbreakers that are coming along and, and demonstrating the art of the possible. But guys, we're starting to run out of time. Uh, it's been a fantastic discussion. Uh, Simon, we have a tradition on this podcast to, to always have a good but bad joke. And for season four, we've decided to give that honor over to our guests. So I'm putting you on the spot here now as we start to sort of calm down and ease off on this episode of a fantastic discussion. Do you have a good but bad joke for our listeners? Yeah, it's a very bad one because it illustrates a lot of the points that I mentioned. I, I was going yeah, to say my £25.82 uh, rewards after 34 years of NatWest is probably, actually that would probably do, but I'll just <laughs> sort of build on that. My <laughs> It's with NatWest as well, so uh, but but uh, this you could apply, you could in, in, you know swap out NatWest with nearly any incumbent bank, I have to say. So my wife was setting up a, a new business and needed a business account, and she tried to go for NatWest. She's been with them for over thirty years as well. Mm. She had to fill in a lot. It was all online, pretty good. She had to fill in, give them lots of information about herself, although she's been there for thirty years. Yeah. Um, and then she pressed the button submit. She never heard from them. So she calls them up and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we can see it in the system. Uh, just wait and you know, a few days and you'll get a no notice back. Nothing. Called up again. Uh, yeah, we can see it in the system. And then she thought, I've had enough of this. She went onto the internet, went to Tide, which is a neo bank for SMS, small yeah. businesses. 20 minutes, she had her bank, uh, business bank set up. So the joke is how crap the traditional incumbents still are compared yeah. to the, the, the startups. <laughs> I, I wish that was a joke. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Villa. It's 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 a horrendously bad, true joke, right? It, it is. But then you know, it. it I, I'm not going to make any excuses for the banks. I don't have to. It, that's your domain, Villa. <laughs> We always try to do better. <laughs> yes, everyone can always try yeah. to do better. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the fintechs have got it all right as well, right? Um, sometimes you you speed things up too much, and it means that you you remove some of the um, elements that you've got in your processes that ensures that you are uh, secure, safe, and can can give that level of trust, right? Sometimes. It's not just all about speed. It's also about demonstrating that you can be trusted um, yeah. in the big picture. And in, in the bank's defense, uh, if you compare that process from 10 years ago, the banks probably kind of increased their pace for with 80%. It doesn't mean it's still fast, but it's, it's improved. So again, it's uh, just a matter of perspective. And I just leave you, leave you with a, um, my final stat, which is quite instructive, I think. There's a survey done of, of US banking consumers last year, which asked, how satisfied are you with your, with your current bank? And 86% of consumers said they were satisfied or very satisfied. Hmm. So you think, well, pretty good, 86% satisfied. But the same consumers said that the banks satisfy only one percent of their financial needs mm. because what they actually need is help in working out how to use debt how to plan their money how to how to make um 
you know, how to make decisions on big purchases, a whole load of 99% of their financial needs are not re related to keeping my bank safe in a big vault, which is what they rated their bank as good at. So that is a massive market opportunity and for fintechs, for startups and for other brands and embedded finance enables those better placed to serve those customers to fill that gap. You just you just hit another one of my hot spots there, Simon. I, I have a, a deep passion around financial literacy and the lack of financial education to our younger generation, particularly as move, things move more and more into digital, more and more gamification and, and social influencing. Uh, there is a higher need for the next generation to really understand how to manage money, not just one plus one and, and what is cash, but actually how to make those fundamental decisions that impact their financial life as they grow. But we have run out of time, unfortunately. Um, would love to have a longer discussion. And actually, now that we're moving into financial literacy, we could go on for another hour. But Simon, it's been fantastic to have you here with us. I think it's been a great discussion. Before we close out, Villa and I would like to give you the opportunity to one, just very quickly promote the new growth playbook, but also give our listeners uh, some insights and to where can they get in contact with you? Uh, what's the best way of reaching you? And if they want to engage on the growth playbook, how do they do that? Yeah, so the best way is, I mean, follow me on LinkedIn. That's uh, that's a really good way of connecting. Um, the New Growth Playbook is an online course about platform business models. So people can just go to newgrowthplaybook.com and you can access it and watch it at your leisure uh, there. And then my current passion project is I created a new brand called embeddedfinance.io. So embedded-finance.io. Again, you'll see it on my links. And that's where I do through which I do my advisory work to companies, either financial or brands and, and helping them move forward in this space. So that's my big thing, focus at the moment. Fantastic. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to our fantastic listeners who have uh, stayed with us uh, through this episode and actually been with us since we started over a year ago now. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, please hit that like button, hit the subscribe button. We would really appreciate you. As always, if you would hop over to our YouTube channel, if you're not already there, hit the subscribe button and like button. And even more importantly, whatever platform you're on, leave us a comment. The algorithms love comments. Tell us what you're thinking of the podcast. Tell us what you would like to hear about in the future. Have you got recommendations on subjects, guests, or anything else? Just give us those comments, even if it's just a good thumbs up, guys. This has been Fintech Daydreaming. Thank you for joining us. Villa and I will be back in two weeks' time with another fantastic guest. Until then, this has been Fintech Daydreaming. This is Fintech Daydreaming. <laughs>